Please take your seats. Good morning, church family. Thanks to Jono and the worship team. Today we come to 1 Peter chapter 5, reading from verses 5 through to verses 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning to read at verses 5 through to verses 7. Likewise, you that are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in due time he may exalt you, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. And so far we read together from the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the message of one Peter. Thank you that Peter wrote it for an important and urgent urgent purpose. And thank you that that purpose for which it was written for those first recipients still stands today. So once again, Father, we ask you to open our eyes to those purposes for which, you, for, for which Peter wrote this letter. And that guide us today as we navigate our way in this world. For your name's sake, amen. So it's clear to everyone that we are near the end of our series on 1 Peter. Now one of the ways to get a handle around the New Testament book or New Testament letter is to always look at how they finish. Because they finish by crystallizing the issue or they finish by crystallizing the purpose for which the letter was written. Now, Peter is no exception to this principle as he himself comes to conclusion of this letter. He wants his readers to know why he wrote it. So he gives us this concise statement of purpose there in verses 12 of this chapter we read from this morning. With the help of Silvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written briefly to you, encouraging and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm on it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Briefly, two things to pick up from this statement of purpose. The gospel that you have received is the true grace of God. The gospel that you have received is God's generosity. Have you thought about that? That if you are a Christ follower, 
You are a recipient of God's generosity. You are, God has poured out his ultimate gift on you. Therefore, you are a recipient of his generosity. But the second thing that Peter wants us to pick from this statement of purpose is that until, up until this point in the letter, Peter has been expounding this purpose. He's been declaring it and clarifying it to his readers. And now as he concludes the letter, he wants to encourage his readers to stand firm in it. So the verses that we are going to look at this morning, they form part of that purpose. The purpose to encourage you and I to stand firm on this grace that we have received. I wonder why we need those verses. Have you thought about that? Why do we need the verses that we read this morning? Why do we need this encouragement to stand firm? Well, we need this encouragement to stand firm because each and everyone sitting here this morning are facing opposition. Angela has just testified. We're facing everyday reminders, everyday discouragements, everyday evidence that says to you, following Christ is not the best option. It's not the best option. If it is the best option, why are you going through what you're going through like we do? Therefore, we need the message of 1 Peter, these verses that we've read, to encourage us to stand firm. I think that's what Siakolis was saying last Saturday when he said, together we have made it. Because up until then, there was this negative narrative that was prevailing through the social networks, this divisive narrative that was challenging them and discouraging them. But whilst they were Dealing with that negativity, there were millions of other people who were saying, you can do it. And that encouragement prevailed over the discouragement. Peter, like those millions of South Africa who stood behind Springboks, he wants to stand alongside us and say, you can do it. I'm sure you've learned this by now. We've been on this letter for a couple of weeks that 1 Peter is a great rebuke to those who speak of God as if he brings heaven now. 1 Peter is a smack on the face. My mother was very good at that one. A backhand smack. Not even looking at you. I often say to my children, you're lucky you are not raised by my mom. And she never misses the right place. My brother always had his lip pointing forward because my mom gave him. And Peter does that here. He does that here to those who live on this side of eternity with an over-realized view of heaven. They like to promise health and wealth and a trouble-free life. Peter wants to say to them, no, 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 my brothers and sisters, we are not in heaven yet. We are here. We are not sitting with the Lamb 
who will wipe our tears away. We have not yet experienced that new age promise where there will be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain, because the old has passed away and the new has come. We are not there yet. We are on this side. And in the words of Paul, many while we groan. So this letter is, is, is a rebuke to those people. It's a letter that knows suffering, that knows trials, and it's a letter that knows injustices. And Peter wants to say, yes, we can face all of those and still know the true grace of God and stand firm on it. However, there's something we need to guard against, that we must not only know the trials of one Peter and not the God of one Peter. That's a constant contraction that Peter does, that yes, there is suffering, but there is God. We must not only know the trials of one Peter and not the God of one Peter. And God is prominent in these last verses of one Peter. As Peter comes to the conclusion of his letter, he wants to urge his readers to stand firm on this true grace of God. And he reminds them time and again of their God. So that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning. There are two themes in the, in the verses that we've read. It's not even a passage, it's just three verses. Two themes that are coming out um, of, these, of these verses. And they both have something to do with the nature of God. They have something to do with who God is. And therefore, my hope, when we come to the end of time together here, we will be able to get a sense, a fresh sense of who God is. That whatever your circumstances, you will be able to know God and trust him. That's what Psalm 78 talks about. It talks about this gospel that is being passed from one generation to another generation. And then this, the writer comes to a point where it says, so that they may know you and put their hope in you. That's exactly what learning about God is about. Learning about God is not an academic exercise. It's not a head knowledge. No, it's a transforming knowledge. It's a knowledge that should fire our hearts up and turn us to worship and pray to God. No one throughout the scriptures have, has ever met with God and remained the same. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Jacob went home limping because he wrestled with God. Therefore, there is no one of us who should come under the knowledge of God and remain the same. Therefore, that's my hope, that our hearts will be fired and once again, we will be able to put our trust afresh to God. So the first theme that we see there is there in verses 6, God's mighty hand. And as we unpack it together, you will notice that it flows from verses 5 which is part of our passage this morning. The second theme that we're going to explore is God's caring heart, verses 7 
then it's clear right in front of us. So let's begin. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in due time he may exalt you. Yes, indeed, it is God's mighty hand that we are to humble ourselves under. However, humility toward God cannot be divorced from humility toward one another. And that's what verses 5 is saying. Likewise, you that are young, be subject to the elders. And that word can literally mean to those who are older. But again, in the context of what Peter has been talking about in the first four four verses, we, we could also say that word means to those who are in position of elders. Whatever it means between those two groups, Peter is wanting to remind us that as much as we are all equal before Christ and before God, we are all image bearers. But we must remember that among us there are those who deserve this appropriate respect, whether because they are older or they are in the position of elders. But Peter is wise. He quickly comes back immediately and balances this equation. Because there might be some of us who want to take it beyond its proportion. Peter says, clothe yourselves all of you with humility towards one another. So I think here now Peter is not exempting anyone, including the elders and those who are older. They also are to clothe themselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because Christian submission and Christian humility is a mutual humility. No one of us is exempt from it. And if you go back, you will notice that this has been the theme of the letter. That for Peter, doing right or living Christianly involves relationships. So let's trace this back and see. Chapter 2, verses 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it to be empires as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. How are we to relate to the state? Peter says we are to submit ourselves. Verses 18 of chapter 2, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are kind, and gentle, but also to those who are overbearing. Chapter 3, verses 1. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husband. Often I don't add on those words. Peter is sufficient. <laughs> Chapter 3, verses 7. Likewise, you husbands, now I can add, live considerable with your wives. These are echoes of humility. They are urging you and I to have unity of mind, to have sympathy and brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind towards one another. They are the echoes of humility. Christian humility 
is a mutual humility. Now Peter comes here in chapter 5, verses 5. He's coming back to other ways in which we can live in humility towards one another. Now, the first thing as we try to apply this teaching of Peter now, we need to, to, be, to say to ourselves is that humility is not a very natural thing to us human beings. It's not. If you didn't know that, I have those news for you. And if you knew that, it's wise for you to recognize that about you. We are not naturally submissive creatures as human beings. We love our independence. We love to be let go and do our thing the way we want. We don't necessarily enjoy being vulnerable to anyone for that matter. Therefore, our natural reaction is to always strengthen our position so that we are also known for who we are. Yet Peter seems to be giving it away all the time. Have you noticed him? You've seen the trace that I've just done. It's all about submitting ourselves to one another. John Stott has written a couple of books on preaching and on Christian leadership. And there's one theme that he comes back again and again. And it's the theme of humility, especially on his preaching books. And he regarded it as a challenge of preaching. And this is what he says. Truth to tell, the pulpit is an extremely dangerous place for any child of Adam to occupy. Let's, let's think those words while we read. It is high and lifted up and thus enjoys a prominence which should be restric restricted to Yahweh or to God's throne. We stand there in solitude, while the eyes of all sit still, silent and subdued. Who can endure such public exposure and remain unscathed by vanity? Pride is without doubt the chief occupational hazard for the preacher. Pride is indeed the chief hazard. For any preacher. But I was triggered by those words to any child of Adam. Who is the child of Adam? It's every one of us. Not only those who stand here and preach. Every one of us, we are sons and daughters. We came out, we are descendants of that single couple, Adam. And one of the reasons for fall was pride. They questioned God. They doubted what God told them. Of course, we've been redeemed. But whilst we are on this side, we are not completely redeemed. We still have part of Adam in us. And pride is one of those things. I listened to Albert Mola. He is the president of Southern Baptist Convention in America giving a lecture on Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer. He, the title of the lecture was Luther and Pride. And he says, Luther tells, or the biographers of Luther will tell us that he, he struggled with pride. But he find it easier to deal with once he got married. 
Again, I'm not going to camp there. I'm just going to fly through. Luther, the 16th century reformer, find it easier to deal with once he got married. And then after, he find it even easier to deal with once he had children. And then after, he find it even easier to deal with once his children were teenagers. This is one of the people that we sit under. We are recipients of what they call reformed theology. He is the father of the church. And he struggles with pride. So we will be naive to think we don't struggle with it. Of course we can say, yes, God has a right to impinge on us. But the state, the wife, the husband, and the elders, hmm, ah, let me think about that one. God, no question about it. I will gladly submit myself under him. But uh, the other people that Peter is talking about, I have great battle to naturally submit myself to them. What Peter is saying here is, We cannot say we're going to forget about other people because now we're talking about submitting ourselves under the mighty hand of God. No, those two goals together, they are blended. They are inseparable. Our humility to God affects our humility to one another. Likewise, you that are younger, Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself with all humility. And then suddenly, God comes into the picture. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this matter of humility to one another quickly changes from God to human, or from, from, from human relationship to God. It changes from how we treat each other to how we treat God. If we are proud to our fellow creature and that we won't submit to our fellow creature, that pride will elevate into a pride that causes us to rebel against God. And that's what Peter is saying. How I treat my fellow brothers and sisters will escalate into how I treat others. How I treat God. God opposes the proud. And then Peter writes, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time or at the right time, he may exalt you. Now, the tone of verses 6 is both assuring and as well as commanding us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? Because it's the safest place to be. That, that is not something should, should, we should find it hard to do. Because to be under the mighty hand of God is the safest place for you and I. Why? So that in due time or at his appropriate time, he may exalt you. God's mighty hand speaks of his controlling providence. Peter here is telling us that God is in control. 
And because he is in control, he can be trusted to do right with his control. He can be trusted to exercise his control for good, for the good of those who humble themselves under his mighty hand. But it's the hand that opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. There is another contrast. That hand, instead of doing good for those who are proud, it may be a judging hand. It's the hand that delivers God's people, but judges his enemies. And often he does that at the same time. And that is the mighty hand Peter is talking about. Listen to Exodus chapter 3, verses 20. This is God speaking. I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. I will stretch out my hand, this mighty hand. And what will happen? My enemies will be judged because of that hand. But my children will be delivered and be released and be exalted. That is the mighty hand of God. You are safe when you are under it. Do not be against that hand. You are in a dangerous place if you find yourself against that hand. But verses 6 again, another thing that is important about it is is not a speaking about a passive resignation, the shrug of shoulders that I suppose what will be will be. I guess that's my fate. Whatever happens will happen. Now when God asks us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, he doesn't want us to resign ourselves and be passive. He wants us to be active and do it intentionally because we know the benefits. Remember how chapter 4 of this letter ended? It ended with this great warning that a time of trial is going to come over upon the church. And then verses 19 of chapter 4 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. There's something, there's activity there. The suffering they're going through, it's God's will. So they're not going to just fold arms and say, I don't know what's happening. But in that time of suffering, Peter says, they must entrust their souls to their faithful creator. It's not a passive resignation, but it's allowing ourselves to be humbled by God. Last week, Thursday, or whichever week, I went to visit my friend who has been in ICU for four days. And he was narrating the story to me. He's just been through a number of things. But the weight that we landed to was God humbled me. As I sat there helpless, knowing well that I'm the one who likes to be active and help others, and now I am the recipient of other people's help. 
I'm grateful, but something in me is protesting that I'm the one who is actually on the other side. I'm not used to be lying on this bed. And I, can't, I, I can do nothing without asking for help from somebody else. I was humbled. God is not, is not in lack of those means of humbling us. He's got them. Sometimes it's the people the closest to us. That's why Martin Luther find it easier to deal with, hum- with pride when he got married. Allowing ourselves to be put in the hand of the one who can exalt us. Do you trust the hand of God? Or do you trust in yourself? And that's what Peter is urging us to do. It's the hand that rescued Israel. It's the hand that raised Christ from the grave. Trust that hand. God's mighty hand and God's caring heart. You will be pleased to know that that's the last theme that we're exploring. Verses 7. Cast all your anxieties to him, on him, for he cares about you. Cast all your anxieties, all your anxieties. This has been a challenge for me this week. As I was preparing, trusting God with all my anxieties. Other translation says, with all your burdens. And that word has an idea of things that wears us down. Burden wears you down. It's got an idea of things that distract us. As the Springboks were about to play, there was this idea of things that was prevailing, wanting to distract them and wear them down. Burdens and anxieties, they are there not to be cherished and to be kept because they are wearing you down. I, I don't know what happened, but I went and talked to my son this morning. He said to me, I'm so glad you're not grumpy anymore. <laughs> Thanks, Turbo. The great preachers. I don't, know what, I don't know if I was grumpy anymore or before, but Kuhle felt I was different uh, to the time I was talking to him. And that, that happens a lot between Kuhle and I. Peter is urging us to stop blame God. Because when we keep these anxieties, we want to be God over our lives and over our circumstances. And if we are honest with ourselves, we like to be in control of things we can't control. And that's what playing God is. Hugh Palmer, one of the Anglican preachers, says, The great test whether I am playing God comes when my head hits the pillow. It's when I suddenly discover all things I am hanging on for myself and often determined to control and indeed I can't get to sleep because I am so worried about them. I don't think I'm the only one who relate with that statement. 
I know many times when my pillow is on the head, but my mind is everywhere and my heart is, is in the issues that I am determined to control and change and I'm unable to. And as a result, I am worried and I can't sleep. I don't think I'm the only one who, who relates to that statement of Hugh Palmer. And Hugh Palmer says, when we do that, we are playing God. Now, that's serious. The word that says cast, it's likened to the word that talks about throwing a javelin. Nobody walks around with a javelin for the sake of walking. The aim of having a javelin in your hand is to throw it as far as possible as you can. So when Peter says cast all, he's saying, think of that javelin. Throw it as far as you can. That's your burden. That's your anxiety. Throw it. Why carrying it? It is a command that implies effort. And then Peter finishes this verse by this phrase, for he cares about you. I've always taken that phrase for granted. But there is no way that you're going to throw all your anxieties to somebody who doesn't have a relationship with you. Surely you have to know that the person I'm speaking to has the best interest at heart for me. It was John Stort who spoke, speaking about J.I. Peck, I said, I would black his shoes any day was talking about him being the best in theology. So he's telling another guy who doesn't know J.I. Pecker, he says, I would black his shoes. Any. That means I would submit myself under this guy when it comes to this subject any day and any time. For he cares about you. It means you can bring yourself under his mighty hand any day, any time. Because he's got the best interest for you in the heart. We can't take that for granted because there are millions of people in the world who can't say God cares about me. They can't say that. Only those who know Christ and who follow Christ. Unless God cares about us, we will never bother to cast our burdens. So we have a God who is the father of Jesus. I know he's just reminded that our savior has a name. is Jesus. And if we believe that our savior is Jesus, this God who is inviting us to throw our burdens is the father of him. That's the God we have. We have a God who values us. Again, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? I can't do justice to that verse. I, have to, I don't have time. Martin Luther again, the reformer, in his commentary wrote and said, You see he is making the beds of the beds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the Gospels a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher. To the wisest of men, we have as many teachers and preachers as there are little birds in the air. Again, Elizabeth Chine wrote a poem, whatever you call it. In this poem, he records a conversation between a robin and a sparrow. They are talking. So said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for us, for you and me. These are beds. They were sitting on the electric fire and or electric, whatever you call it. They were having a con. I don't know how she listened to that, but she's helping us now to capture that. And I think the same thing that Martin Luther is saying is that God has placed birds for us to teach us. They worry. That's what they want, the, the sparrow says. Maybe, my friend, they are worried because they don't have a father who cares like he does for us. But I'm always encouraged that the fact that scriptures addresses worry, it realizes that it's a real and a big thing. As much as we've known about those verses, but we find ourselves anxious again and again. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Will he not also give us all things with him? What kind of God do we have? Do you know where we find the answer to that question? We find the answer at the cross of Christ. That's what Romans 8 says. If God could give us his only son, what else can he, he withhold from us? So the mighty hand, God's mighty hand, and God's caring heart, both of them are inviting us to a fresh sense of who God is. Both of them are inviting us to put our hope and our trust to God afresh, to cast our burdens on him, for he cares about us. He is the mighty God with his mighty hand, and his hand opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in due time he may exalt you. Father, we, we come back to this truth afresh. Not because we didn't know it, 
but because we always slip away from it. Will you please forgive us, Lord, that we will be able to put these truths in practice in the week ahead. That there will be a fresh sense of who God is in us and that fresh sense of who God is will heat our hearts up and turn us to worship you. But to pray and trust you with everything that burdens us. So, Father, go with us as we go into this week. We ask you to go ahead of us and make the crooked ways straight and to watch over us and stand behind us. And that we will know the truth and the reality of your mighty hand, whatever circumstance we may be facing with in the week that is to come. So we worship you, Father, for your name's sake.